we'll just kind of jump in. So I'd like to draw your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We'll just kind of read this and then jump in and see what it's about. And I'll remind you that this is God's word and it is uh, authoritative over your heart and over mine as well. So here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day. By keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud and the deep darkness, and he added nothing more. And then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. This is God's word. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. Father, we uh, are glad to be together tonight. It's good to um, see new faces and uh, reconnect with old ones. It's good to be in a, in a bigger space where we can stretch out. Thank you for your gifts and uh, your generosity to us. And so now, Father, as we come and um, bring our attention before this really famous and really important passage of your uh, scripture, we ask for your help. Would you come and just open up our eyes and unclog our ears so that we could learn what this has for us? And would it be beautiful and would it be joyful and would it be good news for our ears as we see it? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This past summer, when my wife Catherine and me, I, (laughs) moved to Boone, uh, we uh, put up a fence in our backyard because we have a dog. And our dog is one of these dogs that as soon as you open the door like bolts out and like sprints in every direction possible, which is annoying for us. And honestly, I get a little insecure because, you know, she's constantly trying to get away from us. It makes me feel like we're not good dog, <laughs> dog parents or whatever. So we put up a fence in our backyard, big thing so she could kind of be contained. And this past summer we were doing a lot of traveling, so we were, you know, leave to go out of town for, for a couple of weeks. And within a couple of days after we have left, I get a phone call from some random person 
Because basically what had happened is that we had put our dog in the backyard, you know, had a friend come over and kind of, you know, periodically refill our water and, you know, refill our food and everything. And somehow within a couple of days, this dog busted out of the fence and wandered up into some random person's house. And they, you know, got it, you know, got the collar thing and called us. So now it's this huge headache and nightmare because we don't know anybody in Boone yet. We, don't, we can't just call people and say, hey, can you come pick up this dog from this random person's house and take care of it for us while we're you know, out of town for the next two and a half weeks. We couldn't do that. It was a huge mess. Now, the reason why we put up this fence is because we literally live within one minute of 421. We're, we're right off of that main highway. And knowing that our dog has a propensity to wanting to run and explore the countryside... We put up this fence to keep her safe because she would literally kill herself if she busted out because she's just running around and would you know, literally get herself killed. So it really was a matter of life and death for this fence. This was not us trying to restrict her fun and, and trying to spoil her, her you know, ex- explorative propensities. <laughs> um, this, was, you know, this was an act of love. This was us trying to keep her safe. Now, why am I talking about this? Because as we are going to look at this uh, passage tonight about God's law, even just the, just the word God's law, already I know some of your connotations in your mind. You think that is restrictive. That sounds suffocating. That reminds me of guilt. That reminds me of stuff that I, just, I don't like and it feels unpleasant. God's law it feels so barbaric and so heavy and so unforgiving. But I want you to see, as we look at this tonight, That in the same way that the fence was restrictive in a sense, but it was an act of love and it was an act of protection and safety for the dog and in the same way for us as well. So that is my hope, that as we look at this passage tonight, that your attitude, your thoughts towards the law will begin to shift a little. So what we're going to do tonight is instead of just look through the Ten Commandments and kind of go through them one by one by one, is we're going to look at it more as a packaged unit, kind of a, a big chunk. One of these semesters we'll do that. We'll kind of spend a, 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 you know, a night working through one of them at a time. But tonight we're just going to take the whole thing as a, as a chunk. And so what we're going to do is look at it from three different angles. The, uh, we're going to look at the purpose of the law, the paradox of the law, and then the pattern of the law. So the purpose, paradox, and pattern. So first, what is the purpose of the law? Why is this here? Why is this in the Bible? Why are we talking about this? The purpose of the law, the purpose of the Ten Commandments is that it is God's design for your human flourishing. It is God's design for human flourishing. The Bible says that that God is our creator. And so in many ways, the the Ten Commandments function like an instruction manual. That if you adhere to to this code, if you adhere to this this pattern, then, then you really will function well. You really will be blessed in your life. I mean, we've said it in here before, but when you have the little instruction manual in your car, right, you get the little thing in the uh, dashboard, which you never read. If you look through it, it would say that the way to actually get this vehicle to flourish the best is to put gasoline in it. But if you disregarded that and said, I'm going to put in pancake syrup instead, it would damage the car. It would not flourish. It would not thrive. And in the same way, this is... uh, this is what God's law is. It is if you really want to flourish as a human being, if you really want to know what it means to be the most human, this is the way to do it. This is the pattern. Because I know some of you think e- either one of two things about God's law. One is that it's completely arbitrary. Like God's just pulling these principles out of thin air to keep us busy down here. 
Or you think of it as being something that's totally capricious, that God is just mean and does not like fun and wants to spoil all of our pleasure and enjoyment of life down here and says, here, do all this stuff because I don't like fun. I don't like you enjoying yourself. But if you really think about the law in these terms, that it really is your, God's design for your human flourishing, this begins to change the way that you think about it. Because if the law is a reflection of God's own character, and if you are made in the image of God, then, the, then these laws really are made for your human flourishing. One person put, the, put it this way, that the obedient life is the good life. And I know some of you don't believe that, and we're going to continue to look at that. If you were to look at your passage, I didn't include this in, in your little sheet here, but if you keep going down, if you went down to verse 29, it says this, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. You see what he's saying there? He, he's given this to us so that it might go well for us. And so here's the thing. When you honor your design, when you honor the way that your manufacturer made you, then your life really is blessed. You do really enjoy life. And if you dishonor that design, you say, I'm going to put pancake syrup in this thing instead of gas, as it were, your life really does begin to break down and unravel. I mean, just think about it in your own experiences, your own, your own life. Here's just a few examples. You know when you mess around with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you're having sex premaritally, you, maybe not everybody feels this way, but at least initially, at some point, it just feels wrong. It just feels, you just feel guilty about it. You just feel shameful, and it feels like this is not, uh, you just feel crappy, right? And you're having to lie to your roommates. You're having to kind of secretively kind of tiptoe around and creep around it. And the point is, when you break God's laws, it re- they really do break you. I mean, you were not intended to feel that way. You were not intended to go around feeling miserable and feeling guilt-ridden and feeling uh, secretive the whole, you know, the whole way about your, your relationship with somebody that you care for. Well, here's another example. When you get hammered one night and wake up the next morning and you feel like crap, <laughs> that totally sucks. You were not intended to feel like that. You know what I'm saying? When you break God's laws... They actually do break you. This is, this is the way that you were programmed to be. So when you go against them, they backfire on you. Let me give you a positive example. I was talking with my um, wife, Catherine, this week, and she told me a story that when she was a freshman in college, she was, uh, you know, confessionally, she would tell you this, she was obsessed with grades. And so she was constantly breaking the fourth commandment. She, she didn't keep the Sabbath. She didn't keep a day of rest to just say, okay, I'm not going to work on schoolwork. I'm just going to continue to work. And so for seven days a week, every day of the school semester, she was at work, working on school, you know, working on you know, being a student, which is a good thing. But she, she constantly broke the uh, fourth commandment. And it got so bad, it got to a point where she was, um, uh, she was so anxious about grades and so anxious about you know, deadlines and stuff that was coming up that she started to uh, not be able to sleep. She was experiencing insomnia. And so she, she one night got a pill from one of her friends on the hall, some prescription pill for an antidepressant, antidepressant, which essentially functioned like a sleeping pill, and took it and had to go to uh, you know, the school infirmary because you know some sort of weird mixing of prescription drugs and stuff like that. It was just you know, a total wreck for her. The next year for her, her sophomore year, she heard somebody preaching about the Sabbath, about the fourth commandment. She said, okay, I'm convicted by that. I really need to start taking that seriously. And so she did. She started carving out a day of her schedule to dedicate it just to rest and just to worship. 
And she would tell you that was not sort of the key to unlocking her life, but it really did bring in this sort of this new sense of healing and freedom for her. And the, my point is, is that when you enter into the rhythm of the, of the program that God has for you, your life really does flourish. You really are freed from this stuff. But when you backfire, when, when, you, when you break it, it backfires and breaks you. And you're not intended to feel that way. So that is the purpose of the law. It is God's design for your human flourishing. But let's go a step deeper and look at the paradox of the law. And I want to point out two uh, paradoxes here. Because the first is this. When you look at these laws, on the surface, they look pretty doable. I mean, think about this. Take, for example, the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. Most of y'all in this room aren't, even, you know, aren't married, so you don't even qualify to break that you know, commandment, right? Or you look at the uh, sixth commandment, uh, don't kill anybody. My guess is, is that nobody in here has actually you know, murdered anybody. It's just my guess. Uh, but you know, the, you know, on the surface, the law looks easy. The law looks doable. But when you actually begin to understand the Ten Commandments within the framework of the Bible, they are unbelievably deep. They look shallow, but they're unbelievably deep. So look at the first, the, you know, a couple examples. The first commandment, don't have any other gods before me. My guess is that y'all don't have poles and statues in your room that y'all are literally bowing down and worshiping, right? Maybe you are, I don't know. But my guess is that most of you are not. So it's like, okay, I don't have any other gods that I am worshiping. But when you actually look at that, what that means within the context of the Bible, what does it mean to worship something? To worship something means to, be, to have something that totally grips your attention, that something that totally energizes you and motivates you, anything else other than God. In other words, whatever you center your entire life around, whatever your thoughts just naturally gravitate towards, that is what you are worshiping. And so it can be abstract things, it can be concrete things. But you can worship, theoretically, all kinds of other gods that you have created and made. Some of you are actually worshiping the attention that you get from the the, the way that the people of the opposite sex regard you. You worship attention. Well, for some of you, you just worship your appearance, the way that you look, your thinness, your your attractiveness, your, your, your outward appearance. You can worship that and obsess over that and spend a lot of time on that. Some of you can, can worship other people's approval of you. What are people thinking of me? Constantly worried, constantly uh, insecure and worried, are, are people approving of me? So you see, you get underneath that law and it starts to open up. Okay, well, here's another one. The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Jesus shows us in the New Testament how deep that law really goes. The original intent of that law goes much deeper, not just sort of physical acts, but actually into the actual heart. When you are thinking about somebody or looking at somebody in a lustful way, Jesus says, all right, you done broken that commandment. So guys, how's that one working out for you? Walk around campus, seeing girls. You know, rev- you know, if we looked at your internet history, we are constantly breaking this commandment multiple times a day. What about the 10th commandment? Do not covet. Girls, how are y'all doing with that one? You know, when you, when you look at other girls and, 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 and size each other up and compare and say, I wish that I had their wardrobe. I wish that I had their size. I wish that I had their personality. Y'all are constantly breaking that one multiple times a day. And so what I want you to see is that the law, even though it looks shallow, the paradox of it is unbelievably deep. 
And it is way more invasive and demanding than we ever thought it was. But here's the second paradox. While it looks like you can sort of break a couple here and keep a couple here, you know, like, okay, I, I went, I, you go through one day and you keep 8 out of 10, 80%. You got a B on, on law keeping that day, <laughs> right? You know, not bad. But the second paradox is the, the law hangs together like a web. It is all interconnected, interdependent, and connected. So if the first paradox is that it is way more deeper than you thought it was, the second paradox is that it is way more broader than you thought it was. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Martin Luther, who's you know Protestant reformer, 95 Theses guy back in the day, he came up with this unbelievable observation. Because he made this point that you cannot break any of the other commandments without having first broken the first commandment. So, you know, don't have any other gods before me. You can't break any other ones if you haven't first broken that one. So to use an example, uh, you know, eighth commandment, do not steal. You wouldn't, you wouldn't steal if you haven't first broken the first commandment. So, you know, example from, from you know, y'all. Uh, stealing people's grades, cheating, cheating on homework, cheating on tests. Why would you cheat? Why would you steal? Why would you break the Eighth Commandment? Well, you say, oh, because we're sinners, right? But why? Why would, you, why would you sin in that way in that moment? It's because in that moment you are worshiping something else besides God. You are worshiping your grades. You're worshiping the way that your uh, parents are going to think about you. You're worshiping the way that your, your professors are going to think about you. So you see what's happening? Underneath every sin that you commit is a deeper sin of idolatry. You're breaking the First Commandment before you break any other ones. Here's just an example from my own life. Uh, when I was uh, a college student, one summer me and my friends went out to the beach and we're hanging out. And, you know, you get there the first day, so you go to the grocery store and, uh, you know, that morning. So I went and got, I was really into drinking enormous amounts of Gatorade at the time. And so I got those two big, like, enormo, you know, kinds. And, uh, you know, we come back to the room. I, there was no storage for whatever reason in this room, no pantry space in the kitchen. So I put it, I think, in, like, my closet where, where my clothes were. It was the only place I had to really store these things. So we go out for the day. You know, we're tooling around on the beach. And uh, come, back, come back at the end of the day. And, you know, we're all, we're all coming in the room together. And my friend says... Dude, Matt, did you already drink all those Gatorade, those two big things of Gatorade that you got? And in that moment, I lied. As stupid as it sounds now, I broke the ninth commandment. I said, yes, I have, you know, I killed those things. But why? Why did I lie about something so stupid? Why lie about drinking Gatorade? Because in that moment, when he asked that question in that way, I, I heard him saying something. I heard him say, you know, I thought that if he... How can I explain this? I thought that he thought that if I had drank all that Gatorade, that would have been a pretty cool, amazing feat. <laughs> Just because of how he said it. Have you, did you really drink all this Gatorade? And I thought, he's going to think I'm cool if I say yes. In that moment... What I was worshiping was his approval of me, his opinion of me. And because I valued that more than I valued God, in that moment, I was willing to compromise on anything. Yes, I drank all that Gatorade. <laughs> as stupid as it was. And the, only, and the only reason I remember that is because he caught me in the lie. He found out I have these Gatorade things here, which was really awkward to have to explain why I would lie about drinking Gatorade. <laughs> But I did. But you see the point. 
that the law is connected. You can't break one without breaking the others. Do you think about it like, you know, the Jenga tower, where you pull out the, the, the little blocks, this little tower of blocks, and you put it at the top. When you pull out one block, the whole thing crumbles, right? And this is the way that the law functions. You can't keep one without keeping them all. And you can't break one without breaking them all. It is way more broader than you ever realized. And the New Testament affirms this too. I know that some of y'all are going through uh, in a small group this semester, which is a great thing if you're not in one. I encourage you to get in one. But some of y'all are going through the the book of James this semester. And when you get to James chapter 2, you'll read this in verse 10. It's a very fascinating, very interesting verse. It says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. You can't keep one without keeping them all, and you can't break one without breaking them all. And so here's the paradoxes. The law, while it looks really shallow, is way more deeper than you ever realized. And while it looks really kind of you can pick and choose, it is way more connected and broader than you ever realized. And so the point is, the Ten Commandments are way more demanding and way more invasive than we ever really imagined. I have a uh, musician that I'm really into. He's a guy that is a, uh, I don't know if he's a single person or if he's a band or whatever, but... uh, the group is called Half-Handed Cloud. I know that some of you like that person. And uh, he has got this um, EP that he came out with called What's the Remedy? It's really fascinating because he's playing around with, with the language of that the Ten Commandments were, were on tablets. And so he's playing around with sort of this medicine language of, of uh, you know, comparing tablet stone tablets of the law to you know, medicine tablets. And so he has this, uh, this is how the whole album starts. He says, no, we're not getting well when we're still under the spell of a medicine that's failing. If tablet taking could work, it's had more than enough time to get in our bloodstream. And here's what he's getting at. If you take the tablets of the law, kind of like tablets of medicine, and assume that by me doing this, I'm actually going to get better, or by me following these rules, by me taking you know, this, this tablet of, of the law, that God's actually going to like me, you are horribly misguided. Because if you understand the law like this, there is no way that you would look at the law and think, I can do this. There's no way that you can look at the law and say, okay, I actually walk away from this feeling good about myself. When you take an honest look at the law and understand that it is way deeper than you thought it was, way broader than you thought it was, you walk away feeling unbelievably guilty because you know you can't keep it. And the Bible is insistent on this over and over and over. You are not saved by your works. You are not saved by your ability to keep this law over and over and over. And so I know some of you may think, okay, I know God doesn't do that, but maybe God just kind of grades on a curve. And he says, well, God's, you know, God's going to let you in the club simply because you, you tried really hard to keep these laws. And the point is, is that you've just elevated trying hard to a law itself. You just added thou shalt try hard to the mix. But the, the, the point is, well, on the one hand, the law is unbelievably intuitive, right? You think, okay, this makes sense. This is the design for why I should flourish and how I can flourish as a human being. And on, but on the other hand, you think, there's no way I can keep this, and I'm perpetually breaking it. So what do we do? What do we do with the law here? Well, the answer to that question, and really the key to unlocking the entire Bible, I think, is to look at the pattern of the law. So here's the last thing, the pattern of the law. Let's look at verse 6, kind of the opening uh, intro to the whole thing. 
says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God rescues his people by complete grace. Undeserved salvation, he rescues them. He brings them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and then he gives them the law. Not the other way around. You see how unbelievably important this is? God doesn't say, okay, here's the law while y'all are in slavery in Egypt. Y'all keep these rules and y'all follow them. And when you do, I will bust you out of here. No, he says he busts them out by complete grace, by complete mercy. And now here he says, this is the way that you can live in response to what I have done. Grace first, undeserved grace, and then the law. I mean, this is the pattern over and over throughout the whole Bible, by the way. You look at the whole book of Romans, you have 11 chapters of just... Paul saying over and over and over and over, God has saved you by his grace. God loves you because of the fact that God loves you alone, not because of anything you have done, only by his mercy. And then you get to verse 12 or chapter 12, and it says, therefore, in light of God's mercy, live this way. Or if you look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10, my own summary commentary of that verse is, God saved you apart from your ability to do anything. Now get out there and do something. It is salvation by grace, apart from your ability to do anything. And then in response, here's how you can live. But the people of Israel at this point in Deuteronomy, this point in the Bible, had only experienced God's mercy from political and national slavery. And and he does break them out, but there was still a problem for God's people and for you and for me is that we are still guilty of breaking the law. We still stand underneath the law's condemnation of us, right? We are still guilty. So what happens? Years later, as the Bible unfolds, this pattern only intensifies. Because this man named Jesus comes to the land of Israel, and he claims that he did something to the law that nobody had ever done before him. He claimed something. What is it? Matthew chapter 5, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus claimed that he fulfilled the law, that he actually kept the law, that he did not break the law, that he was perfectly righteous, perfectly law-keeping his entire life. And I know you think, why is that important? Why does that matter? And that is a good question. Because you think about it, if you go up to anybody on the street, anybody on this campus and say, okay, what what did Jesus do? What is Jesus known for? And anybody most likely would say, okay, Jesus died on the cross, something like that. He died on the cross for, uh, for his people's sins. Whether or not they believe it, that's you know, kind of what Jesus is known for. <laughs> but as, un- as unbelievably important as that is, there's a bigger question here. Why does Jesus live his life, right? Why spend 30 years walking around on the earth? If the whole point of Jesus was to come and die on a cross, why is he, you know, why didn't God just parachute him directly onto the cross? Why come as a baby and live for 30 some odd years and do the kind of whole rigmarole? What's the point of his life? And here's the point. And here's the piece of the gospel that most people don't get. Jesus not only died for you, Jesus lived for you as well. His entire life is him keeping the law. So at the end of his life, he has a spiritual resume that says law keeper on it. Perfectly righteous. Never broke the law at all. So what happens? 
with Jesus' ministry, his life and death and resurrection, there is this great exchange that happens between people who actually put their trust in Jesus and Jesus himself. Because what is he doing on the cross? He is taking the penalty of our law breaking. He is receiving the blame for how badly we have broken the law. And what does he do? He gives us his spiritual resume that says law keeper. So we get all of the credit of his life. He gets all of the blame on the cross for our life. You see this transaction that happens. So that at the end of it, by complete and utter grace, God looks at you, if you are in Jesus, and says, you are righteous. You have perfectly kept the law. That's how God sees you. Utterly secure. Utterly um, forgiven. Utterly pardoned. But not merely forgiven, like a, the slate is, is wiped clean. In its place, you are given a, a credit of perfect law-keeping righteousness. Grace alone, apart from your ability to do anything. And when you, when you believe that when, that, when the truth of the gospel, of the good news of that starts to get into your bloodstream and into your DNA, that begins to totally revolutionize how you approach the law. And it does it in two different ways. The first is this, that you have a totally different reconfigured motivation for wanting to keep the law. Because before you had an experience of grace, the only reason you kept the law was out of fear. I've got to do this or God is going to punish me. Or you kept it out of guilt. I really screwed up this past weekend, so I've got to, I've got to recover. I've got to you know, do better. Or you simply kept it out of pride. You didn't want people to look, look, look poorly at you and you just wanted to keep the, all the rules to feel superior to other people. But when you start from the starting place of grace and come to the law, you have a totally different motivation, a motivation of joy, a motivation of gratitude. I want to live in a way that is pleasing to the person who has done this for me. And the second way that this does this is this gives you an inexplicable security. And here's what I mean by that. Before you approached the law, and when you didn't obey it, you were crushed, and you felt guilty. But when you are in Jesus and you have his law-keeping record, you have the freedom to fail. You can come to the law and not be afraid of breaking it anymore. Because you have one who has stood in your place and who has kept the law in your place. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. And therefore, you actually want to keep the law. But when you break it, you are not utterly crushed because you have somebody who has stood in your place. Inexplicable security. One pastor put it this way. The law is not the way to life. It is the way of life. And if you understand that, if you understand that experientially, not just cognitively, then the gospel is beginning to take root in your life. That the law, is not just a, the law is not a way to life. It is a way of life. Let me conclude with, let me conclude with this. This is an um, illustration I got from uh, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's um, this British pastor guy. And he says, let's make a distinction between advice and news. He says, advice is this. It's counsel. It's uh, you know, telling you to go do something because you know, this is what you need to go do versus news, which is a report of something that you didn't have anything to do with. All you have to do is just respond to it. You, it was done before you even got there. And so he tells this story. And he says, imagine a king who has gone into battle to protect his homeland. He goes out in the countryside to fight sort of this invading army. And let's say he defeats that army. What does he do? He sends back messengers back to, the, to, the, to his homeland to announce the good news that the battle has been won. And so the people there, what do they do? They respond with joy. They respond with celebration. 
But what if he didn't win that battle? What does he do? He sends back military advisors. Back to the people. Hey, people are coming. Trouble is coming. So reinforce the walls. Put the you know, people with the bow and arrows up here. You are going to have to fight for your life. He is sending back advice as opposed to sending back news. And then this is what uh, Lloyd-Jones says. Every other religion and philosophy and thought system is sending out military advisors to the world. You got to do this because trouble is coming. You are going to have to fight for your life. So keep these rules, keep these rituals as scrupulously as you can because trouble is coming and you're going to have to fight for your life. Christianity is the only religion that sends messengers, good news reporters, people who come and say, all that has been done, all that needs to be done has been done. And the only thing that you need to do now is live in response to it. And when you believe that, when that starts to get into your heart, what do you want to do to the law? You actually want to keep it. You actually want to obey it. You want to please the one who has done this for you. Grace and then law. But not restrictive, vindictive law. It's life-giving. We just sang it, and I'm going to close with this. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. I pray that that be true of you and that that be true of me too. Let's pray together. Um, Let me pray and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you so much for um, tonight and just the chance to be together. I pray that you will um, give us hearts that are uh, not afraid of the law, but are actually excited because of Jesus. Would you free us to obey the law willfully and joyfully because of Jesus and because of the gospel? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.